I'd like to welcome you to our current event and weekly Bible study for November 16th, 2008. And today we're going to be discussing the subject, uh, which has come up a lot in recent times, of is Obama the coming Antichrist? We're going to be looking at that subject in depth, and, and really an in-depth study on the Antichrist, um, things that uh, biblically have to be proven in order to really justify that position. And this main article, and we're going to be segueing into other articles today, uh, but the main article is from Cutting Edge, and its subtitle is, Can it be that Senator Barack Obama is the Antichrist foretold in the Bible? Because I've received several questions about this lately, and I thought it was a pretty good time to address it, considering that he's actually now uh, waiting to, to be made the president. This starts out by saying he certainly has run a messianic-type presidential campaign and has been called a messiah by Louis Farrakhan. Are we witnessing the public coming to the power of the Antichrist? You be the judge. After reading this article, Matthew 24 and key prophecies in Daniel are key passages if we are to understand this issue. Now, at the very beginning here, they have a, a picture of um, Paul, I, I believe, the Illuminati playing cards. And I've, I've, just, I've covered this in other studies. And these are different, I don't know if you call them trading or playing cards that they came out with in the early 90s. And each one of them has a different theme on it. And... Um, Essentially, one of the one I'm looking at right now is called the Messiah, and it's one of the things that the Illuminati has to have in order to bring about the New World Order. They have to have a coming Messiah. That's part of the of the uh, puzzle, okay? And there's all these different playing cards, and, and pretty much it's one of the most accurate things I've ever seen. And they actually, there's a guy named Stephen Dollins that did a whole study on this. And if you key in the um, Stephen Dollins or Illuminati... Uh, playing cards like on YouTube or um, Google, you can watch the whole presentation. He does a really good job. He goes through, I think, most of the cards, and you can see that it's uncanny, the similarities between the coming New World Order and each individual event on these, these playing cards. So, again, the devil tends to telegraph his punches prior to cataclysmic events, prior to certain big things that are on the horizon, and this is just one more example of that. So if we go further, it says, Once Israel became a nation again in May of 1948, genuine Bible-believing Christians the world over began to expect that the Antichrist would be the next major event on the world scene. After all, in Matthew 24, Jesus presented the most important prophetic dissertation in the entire Bible as to how the end of the age would unfold for the Jews, specifically and for insofar as the world shares this planet with Israel. In Matthew 24, Jesus asked, was asked by his disciples, what is the one single event which would foretell his second coming? Jesus gave them many more than just one single prophetic event. Now let us examine you know, this passage here. So the synopsis of Matthew 24, essentially, is that Jesus' disciples had just pointed out to him the beauty and magnificence of, of the Temple of Herod. The, the Temple of Herod was rebuilding. When Jesus turned around and uttered a most horrible prophecy, and he said, See ye not all these things, Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus' disciples panicked because they equated the destruction of the temple with the destruction of the nation Israel, and further equated both destructions with the end of the age. In some aspects they were not wrong, as events would quickly demonstrate as both the temple and Israel, well, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, Israel was dispersed. Okay, um... And many of them went to uh, back to Babylon at that point. 
This is where we get the Babylonian Talmud from because they fled back to Babylon at that point. But that's a whole other study. As soon as this group reached the Mount of Olives where they could talk to Jesus privately, they asked him, Tell us when these things shall be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world. Notice they asked Jesus for the sign. Um, in this case, they were asking for one sign. But he was going to give them much more than they asked for. When we properly understand the importance of the signs by which we can know the end of the age is approaching, we will be much better prepared when the events begin to break over our heads. However, before we can review these signs, we need to understand the context into which Jesus placed these signs. The context is found in verse 8, where he says all these are the beginning of sorrows. These are just the beginnings of sorrows. This word sorrows has a special meaning in the original Greek. The Strong's number... Uh, really means the pangs of childbirth. Strong's number G5604. And it pangs of childbirth. So the beginning of these multiple signs heralds the beginning of the birth process. Someone or something is to be born onto the world scene. He is to appear. But whom? When we get this answer in verse 15, Jesus is suddenly speaking of prophecy in Daniel 29.27, Daniel 11.31, and... 12:11. So let's just go there real quick. Daniel 9:27. So Daniel 9:27 says, "And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate." Okay, so this is in reference to the abomination of desolation being committed by the Antichrist at the midpoint, three and a half years, of the tribulation covenant that the Antichrist is going to confirm with not only Israel but many other nations for a week. In this particular case, the week is representative of seven years. So now let's go to Daniel 11.31. Daniel 11.31. And the arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall make the abomination of desolation abomination that make it make it desolate this is another reference to that abomination of desolation uh and they're basically saying here that the sanctuary is going to be polluted well in order for the sanctuary or the temple the rebuilt temple to be polluted it has to be rebuilt so that dome of the rock that's up there right now which is a from islam i think it's islam's third most holy site that's got to go in order for the temple to be rebuilt most likely now i don't know if they're i've heard other things that i've read recently where they're going to have Try to have a joint like a Islamic, Christian, Jewish uh, worshiping site up there. I don't know, you know if the Lord's going to permit that, but we know the temple's going to be built at that point. So, in, in other words, in order to take away the daily sacrifice, okay, you're going to have to have a temple in order to perform the sacrifices. So, the temple has to be rebuilt here. Now, I'm not advocating the sacrifice system because. To me, that's an abomination in the sight of God because Jesus Christ was, you know, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. He is the one and only perfect sacrifice. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It was finished. Okay. Uh, So all these other things are just counterfeits, particularly after Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. Everything else is just a satanic counterfeit. But this is what the Lord is going to permit to happen. So... But for people, there's a lot of Christians that are actually, I know that there are organizations designed where they're actually actively putting money into the building and the restoration of the temple 
And that is an abomination for any Christian to put money into something like that. I think part of the reason they're wanting to do it is for self-centered purposes because a lot of these people are believing that, well, the sooner that the temple gets rebuilt, the sooner we're going to get you know, raptured out of here and not have to suffer anything. So I, I just question a lot of times their motivations. Um, and if they would really look at that thing and, and study it biblically, hopefully they would see that it's wrong for them to actually put money into that venture. If we go further, Daniel 12, 11, <clears throat> And from that time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Okay, so this is this in reference to um, this is in reference to the second half of the tribulation. Okay, after the daily sacrifices cease, after the abomination of desolation takes place, when um, the Antichrist comes in the temple and essentially proclaims himself to be God, there's going to be the second half of the tribulation, or essentially three and a half years. So this prophecy states that the Antichrist will walk in the Holy of Holies in the temple at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period for the express purpose of making, of desolating it and desecrating it and causing extreme offense to God. Not to say God wasn't offended probably before that, <laughs> okay, because of what I said about Jesus Christ, but uh, then it says, Daniel calls this act the abomination that makes desolate. Scholars have called it the abomination of desolation. When Jesus suddenly starts talking of the Antichrist committing the abomination of desolation in the Holy of Holies in the temple, all sorts of red lights should begin flashing. But thanks to the terrible teaching of traditional Bible believers, these red lights are nowhere to be found. In Matthew 24, 1-2, Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple uh, Herod was rebuilding in verse 3. Disciples correctly understand that the destruction of the temple heralds the destruction of the nation Israel. Indeed, both destructions were carried out in 70 AD. But this was, again, this was a temporary uh, destruction. It wasn't as though every single um, Israelite or Jew was wiped out at that point. Okay, They were dispersed, and yes, it was uh, they destroyed the temple at that point, but we that distinction. So yet, Jesus is suddenly speaking of the Antichrist, desecrating the Holy of Holies. Therefore, the nation Israel must have been reborn by this time. Okay, and the third temple rebuilt. Otherwise, the Antichrist would not be able to offend God by desecrating the Holy of Holies inside the temple. This is just kind of common sense stuff that he's pointing out here. And sometimes before the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies, at day 1260, 1260 of the tribulation period, the temple will have had to have been rebuilt. Okay, so it's, it's you know, again, I subscribe, I'm on the email list of the organization called the Temple Institute. And it is an Israeli uh, Jewish uh, organization whose sole goal is to get that temple to be rebuilt. And they've got, you know, they've already got most of the implements ready for, you know, the temple. They just they just um, reintroduced the uh, oh the candle menorah, and it was beat from like one piece of of, of I don't know exactly if it was brass or gold or whatever, but. They just debuted that, and they and they actually they sent me a video where it showed them marching it through the streets of Jerusalem. So most of the like the temple garments, a lot of these things have already been rebuilt, and I think a lot of them they have, they just haven't really released it to the public yet of of everything that they have actually waiting for this to happen. So it's it's you know it it confirms biblical prophecy, but we just want to always view it in light that you know. They're not understanding 
Jesus Christ at this point. The Bible says blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. So the Jews in part have been blinded and they haven't saw Jesus Christ for who he is yet. And we're going to be talking about that today when they actually get their eyes opened. Um, corporately and collectively as the, uh, as the Jewish race during the tribulation. So we're going to be looking at that as well. So therefore the signs and the birth pangs that Jesus listed in Matthew 24 will give birth to the nation of Israel and the Antichrist. Let us examine these birth pangs and then we shall see how Israel was born exactly in accordance with these signs and with these birth pangs. Jesus listed the following birth pangs as the multiple signs by which believers would know the end of the age is close. Uh, first one, verse 4, unparalleled spiritual deception. Uh, so let's just, Matthew 24, verse 4, just so we can track here. And it's quite simply, it just says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. And then verse 5, And for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Okay. And there's going to be many antichrists. There's going to be, and we've got one that's getting ready to take the office of the presidency very soon here, who basically is being portrayed as this Messiah-like type figure. Um, so, one of the first warnings Jesus Christ gives is, is take heed that you're... Um, that no man deceive you. Okay. That's why you have to stick to the word of God. Hear everything to the word of God and see if it lines up with the word of God. Because there's a lot of men and women out there trying to deceive others. Because, why? Because they're of their father the devil and of his works they will do. He is the father of lies. So there's a lot of people out, right out, uh, out there right now that have their own agenda. Uh, particularly in pseudo-Christian or Christian circles, and they're going, and they're saying this, and they're saying that, and they're saying God spoke to them about this, and it doesn't even remotely line up with the Bible. And that's all I need to know. Or they'll give some prophecy that doesn't come to pass. Or if they do have prophecies that come to pass, i got 50% that aren't. Well, according to Deuteronomy 18, you got to be nailing every prophecy every time, okay, in order to be a true prophet. Look it up at the end of Deuteronomy 18. So there's a, and then there's got, you got the people out there saying I'm one of the two witnesses in Revelation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that one. Or then you got the ones like this prophet Yahweh guy that says he can call UFOs down and, and he does it in the name of Yahweh and, and it's just it goes on and on and on with these people. They all have their own agenda. They all every single one of them the common denominator is they all get away from the Word of God. They they take no chance. They take no stand whatsoever in the King James Bible. Uh, they're usually in some 501c3 institution. They've got all their licenses and their degrees. And a lot of their judgment has been absolutely, totally corrupted and clouded. So every there's so many people that have their, their, their own agendas. They're trying to build either a ministry or something where people follow them and almost essentially sometimes worship them. And just to let you know, that is not my goal here. Okay, I want you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. Be good Bereans, as the Bible said, because those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they sought the things out in the word to see whether they be so. And that's what we need to be doing. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 So we need to be doing these things and don't follow any man. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Jeremiah 17.5 So we don't want to be trusting in man. We want to be trusting in the word of God and these types of things. So 
One of the main things that we need to look out for, and this is why this ministry is here, is the unparalleled spiritual deception that Jesus warned about in Matthew 24, verse 4. Take heed that no man deceive you. One of the main ways they're going to deceive as many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, shall deceive many. There's a lot of these ascended masters that say, you know, I am Christ, like this devil betrayer guy, he calls himself Lord Betrayer, and he basically says that he was the overshadowing of Jesus Christ when he walked on earth in the last three and a half years of his ministry. He has the audacity to say that. And he's one of these ascended master characters. Really, probably the head one. And and I've done several teachings on him looking at, uh, to see if this guy could actually be the Antichrist. And you can access those teachings uh, online. Just key in Maitreya, M-A-I-T. Because I think he's going to be a very, very important figure Moving into the end times, he has his own, essentially, United Nations-sponsored website. This guy has been around for a long time. He is supposedly the one that's going to claim to be the fifth Buddha, um, Jesus Christ reincarnated, Krishna, you know, the whole ball of wax, this guy is claiming. So, this spiritual deception is so pervasive and of such great concern that Jesus reiterated the warning twice in this chapter uh, twice more in verses 11 and in verses 24 in regard to take heed that no man deceive you. Yet, the churches nowadays are the very, for the most part, and are usually the very sources of deception. Instead of giving their parishioners or, or, or people in their congregations truth, many times they're giving them lies. Or they're just giving them, you know, these fluffy little sermons on, you know, God is love and these types of things, and they're not preparing them or warning them for the times to come. And yet Jesus Christ was saying, you know, take heed that you be not deceived. My children are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. That was Romans 16, 17, and 18, and I quoted several other verses before that. So anyway, this is something we really have to be paying attention to. In in today's day and age, as we're probably most likely right on the cusp of going into World War III, into, well, an economic collapse, probably going into a World War III scenario, having then to do with the Antichrist actually arising out of the ashes of World War III, and then the start of the Tribulation, since we're right on the cusp of that, if there's any time in the history of mankind when you want to make sure you're not deceived, it's now. So, because of the the stakes are very high as, as well. So, certainly we are faced with just such spiritual deception today, as ministries thought to be fundamental and right on target, are suddenly seen shifting to support liberal or even New World Order causes. I mean, there's a ton of churches out there that were actually supporting Obama for this presidency. The most rabid pro-abortion, pro-homosexual um, presidential candidate that has ever been. And that's just, and not even to mention, you know, the communist, the socialist, the Marxist, the Islamic ties that this man has. All the lies and the deceptions, the cover-ups, and and yet we've got people that call themselves Christians actually supporting this this person or whatever. So it's unbelievable. But there's just no there's there's no discernment uh, for the most part left within these modern day churches. So then it says in this day Christians must have their eyes on Scripture, acting like noble Bereans and not just on a man or on his organization. We must diligently compare everything said and done against Scripture, remembering that organizations and men have suddenly turned bad 
after years of seeming to be right on target. As Jesus warned, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, again, I don't believe this is works-based salvation. I believe that if the Holy Spirit really truly lives inside you, you're going to endure to the end because you're going to have the capability of enduring to the end because the Holy Spirit is going to give you that ability. It's not in and of yourselves, okay? But remember, through I can do all things through Christ, which strengthened me, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We're doing it through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, okay? That's, um, that's called being an overcomer, and I've done a whole series on this about uh, overcoming and, and this particular verse, enduring to the end, and these types of things. Uh, so, enduring to the end is more evidence of salvation, but it's not as though, okay, now all of a sudden I've got to earn my way to heaven, because if you start thinking that um, it's something that I do, and it's all about me, 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 then it turns into a works-based religion, okay? and that's not faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is why it's very important to make sure you read the Bible. Because if you're reading a perverted Bible, how are you going to build faith? Because it comes by the word of God. There's only one word of God. Not like 80 or, or 120 different translations God has up in heaven. The Bible says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.9. So, there's only one word settled up in heaven. You just need to make sure your Bible lines up with the words in heaven, and that would be the King James Bible. We've done all kinds of studies on that. So, if we go further, the false Messiah figure uh, is another thing that's warned about. And again, we, we kind of talked about that, but in verse 5 it says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. This is another thing we need to be looking out for. All you got to do is look at the, at the election that we just have to know that the false Christs are on the rise, man. I mean, we got all the, we've got a whole website devoted to Obama. It's called like Messiah, ObamaMessiah.com or something. And they go up there and they have all these things. And we've talked about this in, in, the, in the past weeks on all the quotes from Obama about, you know, the whole um, Messiah angle that he has been pushing and that other people that have been following him, the people that go to his conferences, some of them are actually getting healed. Oh well, how do I explain that? If if okay, some Obama, some some Obot, which is what we call them because they're like robots. They're Obots though. They come to you and they're like, I don't care what you say, Mister Christian. I went to that Obama thing and I got healed. Okay, how do you explain that? Well, the Bible says that when the Antichrist comes, and I'm not calling Obama the Antichrist. I believe he is a Antichrist, but I don't believe he is the. And we're going to prove that today, hopefully scripturally to you. But when the, it, somebody would come to you and say, now this happens all the time. This is called a demonic healing. There are people that go to satanic rock concerts and they'll actually have satanic altar calls and people will actually get healed. Okay, um, People go into these Obama things getting healed and, and I heard this one account where it said that when they question Obama about the healings, he always downplays it and you know what he'll say? He says, my time has not yet come. Like Jesus, I think after he turned the water into wine, oh ho ho! Yeah, but see, he's playing that Messiah card. So he's wanting to, to look like he is this Messiah walking around on the planet here. And these people go, and I mean, we're talking, he's using mass hypnosis. There's also much witchcraft involved in this that has also really not been talked about. But I guarantee you 
that you've got these people like we talked about, pagans for Obama, and, and, and the fact that these people are in high-level governmental positions. Guaranteed, they're generational Luciferians. They would not be able to get into that position unless they weren't. Okay, God is permitting it to happen. This is part of the strong delusion God said he was going to send in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said he was going to send the strong delusion that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned to receive not the love of the truth. God clearly predicted he was going to do that. So it shouldn't be of any surprise to us, but these people are going to these Obama things and they're coming out and they're being transformed and they're under his spell. And I mean that literally. Not only is the man using mass hypnosis in order to carry this out, but I guarantee you there's mass witchcraft and incantations and spells that are being done prior to these rallies to further literally cast a spell over the people there. The Bible says, of whom a man is overcome, the same he has brought into bondage. Well, if you go and you sit under one of these devils, like Obama, or if you go to a church like Robert Schuller or something, and you sit under one of them, let's say you were finding fault with them before, but you figured, oh, I'm going to go check it out, and I'm going to see what this person's all about go and you get under their teaching and all of a sudden, you know what, all these things that you used to have problems with, they kind of start to fade away. You're not seeing fault with them anymore. Why? Because you've been overcome by that man, by the spirits that emanate and operate through that either man or woman. Now, you're brought into bondage. Now, you can't see anymore. You've been blinded to the, to the truth. Okay, this is how it happens. And this is why a lot of times people will go and they'll be in these 501c3 churches uh, under some lukewarm pastor and they just can't leave because they've been overcome and they can't really see what is really going on. Why? Because it's a spiritual battle and they don't identify it as a spiritual battle. Whereas the Bible talks about that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against princes, principalities, rulers of wickedness, powers, these types of things in high places. And that's why the Bible talks about putting the full armor of God on and, and devils roaming around as a roaring lion seeking whom he, whom he may devour. We're not understanding that we're actually in a spiritual battle and we're just looking at this from a temporal, physical standpoint. And we need to kind of shift gears and look at it from this other standpoint because these things are overcome through prayer and, you know, through putting on the arm of God and identifying who the enemy actually really is. Holy living, you know, the fruits of the Spirit... And again, that would be a whole other study. But um, these are just things we need to keep in mind when discussing this subject. So then we go to verse 23 of Matthew 24. It says, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Okay, right there, Matthew 24. Now, we quote that verse a lot, but the Bible clearly predicts in the end times okay, that there's going to be many false Christs. I would say um, Obama fits into that. False prophets show great signs and wonders. That's how they're going to... And also, the Bible talks about the Antichrist when he comes, they're going to be deceived by the miracles and the great signs and wonders. Okay, so miracles and signs and wonders are no indication that it's of God. Unless that miracle or sign and wonder lines up with the word of God and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ and points you to him, if it's pointing to something else, then it's demonic. I'm not impressed by that type of stuff. But they're going to be coming with more and greater frequency. If you think the deception's bad now, where do you see what Satan has in store for you? Yes, God is permitting it to happen. This is the strong delusion that God said he was going to send. 
Okay, just don't be caught up in it. Wherefore, come out from among them and be not partakers of her plagues. That's why uh, God says that. And be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So we don't want to be doing that. We, we want to be separating ourselves from that, separating ourselves from the world, these types of things, so that we're not, so that we don't fall under the spell of some evil man or some evil organization or, or such like. So if we go further, then we. We talk about, in verse 6 of Matthew 24, the wars and the rumors of wars. Uh, verse 6, Matthew 24, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So, I'm not saying all this stuff today so that you're going to be troubled. I'm saying this as a watchman to warn you, because I love you enough to tell you the truth. Galatians 4.16 says, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That's what usually happens, though, with most people. With most people that call themselves Christians, you know, if you tell them the truth, they get offended. They get offended. Well, you know, we're going to really see in the in the days ahead, probably very shortly, particularly in America. Now, in a lot of, in many countries right now, they've already had to endure all kind of suffering and affliction and these types of things in, in um, you know, areas of Africa and China and in um, many parts of the world. They've had to, uh, they've been tested. They've been tried. Okay, by, by the Lord. And not to say more testing and trials are not going to come, but in America, we really haven't had that yet. I really think we're going to start to see a, a real separation of the true Christians as opposed to the pretenders very soon because the strong delusion, the people that are wanting to believe the lie, and the people that are, that are just warming a pew in one of these, these 501c3 corporate entities and, and having no real desire for the truth, we're going to really start to see who really desires truth who really desires to want to um, live by the word of God and to adhere to the word of God and these types of things. This separation is coming. So, um, the wars and the rumors of wars, we're seeing a lot of that all the time. But then it says also, for these things must come to pass. The end is not yet. But then it says, see ye be that you're not troubled. Okay, so this isn't things that I'm saying to freak everybody out and, and to do this. These are things that we should be in prayer about. Preparing ourselves, the Bible says, The prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. So now um, we're foreseeing the evil, okay? And this doesn't mean running out of fear of man, okay? Or, or doing something half-cocked, okay? We have to combine that with the verse where Jesus said, He that seeks to save his life shall lose it, and he that seeks to lose his life for my sake shall find it unto life eternal, Okay? What that is in reference to is not so much, you know, you wanting to protect your family and, and, and hide yourself from the. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. This is somebody that wants to hold on to the world, that wants to hold on to these present things that moth and, these, and, and that canker will corrupt and these types of things. They want to hold on to their lifestyle. They want to hold on to this or that. And that's an idol before God. Uh, this the the verse where where the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. This is more in regard to protecting your family, yourself, foreseeing what is coming on the horizon, um, and and these types of things. The Bible talks about that you you are to consider the ant, though they be little, they're exceedingly wise. And what does the ant do? He stores up his food in the summer when there's harvest, and so he has food in the winter. Okay, these are just things I'm telling you that the Bible does say. Okay? We just want to make sure we're not motivated out of fear of man, but out of fear of God. That's the big difference here. Okay, So, we go further. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This is an idiomatic phrase. 
which defines a conflict started between two local combatants but quickly joined on both on both sides by allies, thus making the war much larger. After the attacks of 9-11, governments throughout the world have continuously threatened war against nations in the world, most specifically Iran and North Korea. Nations like, like Afghanistan and Iraq have been militarily invaded. Wars and rumors of wars is the order of the day. Okay, And again, these are controlled crises, and the Illuminati has stated that uh, the um, controlled conflict brings about controlled change, and, and every world war that we've had, you know, World War One, World War Two. Korean War, Vietnam, these are wars that have been orchestrated primarily out of the motivation of money because of the, the war contractors and all these different particular things that happen. And also, the people that are at the top of the Illuminati view the troops that are being slaughtered and the people that they are slaughtering as human sacrifices to Lucifer, to Satan. Okay, If, if the truth be known, that's a big motivation at the top for the Illuminati. Satan comes to, you know, to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and, and this is one of the ways he does it, it's through war, and that's also a way to um, make a ton of money for the people that are involved with the implements of war, okay? And again, I don't want to say a whole lot more about that, because that's really a whole other study you could get into. Uh, famines and earthquakes occurring all over the globe, and uh, we talked about that in verse 7. Um, famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places... I just saw this chart the other day on how the earthquake ratio in the last five years or maybe since has just went off the scale. If you compare all the earthquakes that they add them up, like from 1900 till now, had this gigantic spike in like the last five to... And so that's something that, that we can actually document very easily. Pestilences, you know, this is why I did that, that 14 city tour in the Avion flu. I believe that's one of the main things that, that they could release. Um, and if you haven't seen that presentation, you can go up on, um, really I found out that if you just go up on Google and just key in Dr. Scott Johnson, I'm there right there. I mean, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's, there's like the first five things you can see the avian flu presentation for, um, for free, um, and buy the DVD or anything. Uh, you can look at that and some other things, but that's up on Google, uh, video and it's up on YouTube as well. And again, not to say that's the only pestilence that we're looking at. There's, there's what they also call biowarfare with anthrax and, and Ebola uh, types of things. Well, so if we go further, so then we go further and it says, When one examines the process of the birth of Israel from the first Zionist Congress in 1897 to its birth in 1948, you can see how this birth period and the pangs of birth... Um, how this birth is fulfilled with the birth pangs prophecy in the preceding things we've just read. Let's take a cursory examination of this historic record. Let us begin by discussing the unprecedented historical miracle of Israel's rebirth. God began to throw the Jews out of the nation with the invasion of King Nebuchadnezzar in 1602 BC. Jews never really governed themselves as an independent state from that time forward, even though the Greeks and the Romans allowed Israel limited self-government. However, Rome's patience for the Jews was put to the test continually by their repeated rebellions. Roman practice was finally ex Roman patience, I'm sorry, was exa finally exhausted in AD 66 when the Jews rose in an unprecedented revolt. At first, the Jews' army took over part of Palestine, including Jerusalem. Rome's military response was also unprecedented. 
as it sent an immense force against Jerusalem. Their siege lasted for over three years, and in A.D. 70, the Roman army finally conquered Jerusalem. Roman leadership was determined to fully rid themselves of the perennially rebellious Jewish nation. Therefore, they slaughtered untold number of people and began to systematically force the Jews out of Israel and into nations which surrounded her. In doing so, they fulfilled God's many warnings that he would punish Israel in just this way if they continued to sin against his commandments. And they had also, they had mainly, they had just rejected the Son of God, their Creator. Okay? The Bible says that he came to his own, the Jews, the Israelites, and his own received him not. Where does it say that in John 1? But historical fact records that Israel was put out of her land for the next 1900 years. Her biblical land was controlled by a succession of Gentile powers during that long period of time. At this point, Israel should never have been expected to gain back her land. I mean, from a just a logical standpoint, not a biblical. But then it says, because no people had ever been out of their land for several hundred years and had ever regained it once again. But Bible scholars who read the Bible literally consistently insisted on the authority of God's word that Israel would be restored back to her land. In fact, there would be scholars who maintained that the countdown to the end of the age could not actually begin until national Israel was reestablished. And against all historic odds, Israel was reborn in one day in May of 1948. Since then, she has fought several wars for her survival against incredible odds. The rebirth of Israel in 1948 was truly a historically unprecedented miracle of God accomplished against all historical odds. But we should not have been surprised because God foretold in many places in the Old and the New Testaments that he would tear Israel out of her land if she refused to obey his commandments, but then God would repeatedly turn around and promise national restoration. So, when the Zionist conference was held in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland, for the express purpose of beginning an organized and concerted effort to return significant Jews back to Israel, the prospects seemed bleak indeed. The entire region was tightly controlled by the Turkish Ottoman Empire, whose rulers would most likely not look with kindness on the return of the Jews to their homeland and to the restoration of national Israel. Nevertheless, the Jewish delegates to this conference felt a unique, heavy hand upon them, propelling them forward. This conference ended with a commitment of influential and wealthy Jews to begin funding a return of individual Jews back to the Promised Land, and they did in hundreds at first, and then by the thousands, and then by the tens of thousands. From the beginning... The quiet, invisible, spiritual direction leading Israel back to her land was not traditional Judaism. And it certainly was not Christian. Rather, the spiritual leadership was the Illuminati, the Illuminist. The Rothschild family took the early leadership in this crucial struggle and provided the immense funding necessary for the Jewish immigrants to buy back land from the Arabs once they settled in Israel. No Jewish settler ever understands this fact as they were totally deceived in regard to it. Now, this is why the Rothschilds um, ended up being the ones instrumental in getting the hexagram put on the Israeli flag because that was their seal. Their seal meant red shield. Red shield. Rothschild means red shield. And on the red shield was a hexagram, okay, which is one of the most highest forms in um, the Jewish mysticism religion of the Kabbalah, okay, And it's one of the highest symbols in all of witchcraft that there is. So, 
Uh, we've done a whole study on the hexagram here. Now understand, God was permitting all this to happen, just like he's permitting the strong delusion to be in sent. It's part of his plan. But understand, we need to understand that, you know, who was actually the money behind this, okay? And it's almost like God's using them like pawns in order to do his, ultimately accomplish his plan. You know, what Satan intended for evil, the Lord will use for good, that type of mindset we have to have when we're looking at this information here. So, in the first decade of the 1900s, storm clouds were forming on the European horizon. As ethnic groups all throughout Europe and Eastern Europe began to make demands that would soon accumulate in World War I, the causes of World War I were several. The continuing instability of the Balkan Peninsula region, the Austrian annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1908, the Balkan Wars 1912-1913, and the gradual collapse of the Ottoman Empire. As the promise, as much promise of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire created throughout Europe in the Middle East, it also weakened the Turkish control over the region, allowing the planned Jewish influx to continue and to flourish. As the storm clouds grew, so did the pressure upon Jews living in Europe. <clears throat> Thousands began to flee persecution, seemingly being driven to the promised land. Even though many Arabs living there complained and, and even carried out some physical reprisals, the fact is, is that when the Jews arrived, they came with enough money from wealthy Jews in Britain, America, and Europe so that they could begin to buy back the Holy Land parcel by parcel. Remember our discussion above of this idiomatic phrase that the Lord used. The phrase literally describes a war in which the fighting is begun by two smaller nations, but when each side is quickly reinforced by allies, thus resulting in a far wider, more devastating war. This is exactly how World War I began. The spark that touched off World War I was the assassination assassination of Australian Archduke Ferdinand, Ferdinand by a Serbian nationalist in 1914. The war quickly spread to many different fronts and eventually involved all major Western powers. Quickly, the war formalized between the Allies, who were France, Britain, Russia, Italy, and the United States, and the Central Powers, who were German, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. The war was concluded on November 11, 1918 at 11 a.m., Note the occult practice of grouping together important numbers, in this most case the important number of 11, three times. November mean the 11th month on the 11th of November at 11 a.m. So, it was three 11s. The war ended on the 11th month of the year, 11th day of the month, 11th hour. Uh, this historic fact firmly places the occult stamp of the Illuminati on this war. Now, if we look at the number 11, 11, 11 is many times symbolic of disorder, disintegration, and judgment. It's from a biblical numeric stand. I don't want to go too far down that, but many times that's what it's associated with. And for occultists, they're obsessed with this. They base their whole lives off things like, you know, astrology, the alignment of the stars, and these types of things, and they're very obsessed with days and times and weeks, and things that the Bible really warns against. And this is why, you know, we have these occult holidays following uh, the occult calendar falling on days that we, particularly in America, celebrate as, you know, like Christmas and uh, Halloween or Easter, Ishtar, these types of things. I've done studies on all these you can access on, on my homepage. If you ever want to search for a subject, just go to my homepage, Sermon Audio. There's a little search box on the right-hand side. Key in even a portion of the word you're looking for and just hit search and... If, if I've talked about it in any of those teachings, it'll pop up. They're all the teachings that I've done it on. 
So if we go further, this historic fact then places this occult stamp uh, of the Illuminati on the war, and this is number 11. Albert Pike would have been pleased, for the First World War had occurred just as his demonic vision in 1870 had foreseen. Okay, so Albert Pike, the highest ranking, one of the, well, the highest ranking Confederate war general that actually has a statue of him erected inside the city limits of Washington, D.C. He started the Ku Klux Klan. He was the highest ranking Freemason of the 1800s. This guy was wicked. He wrote Morals and Dogma. We're going to be quoting Morals and Dogma in um, day very much, but um, this study is going to take me probably two or three weeks to complete on the Antichrist. So, Anyway, we're going to be talking a lot more about Albert Pike. They've actually written a story uh, where he predicted these three world wars and this demonic vision he had in 1870. And if you think about Cutting Edges, you have to subscribe to their service. I think it's $25 a year. If you want to access, I think you can access their, their news reports, like the breaking news. But in order to access all their archive stuff, you have to subscribe. So this article about Albert Pike is, is entitled... Um, it's under the link News 1056, 1056, if you want to do a key. And then it says, the aftermath of the war was huge. Over 30 million people died during the fighting. Millions more died from famine and various illnesses, both during the fighting and afterward. Much of Europe was in ruins. The Tsarist government of Russia fell in 1917 and was replaced by the Illuminist government from hell, communism. Okay. Now again, one of the reasons also the war ended was the Spanish flu outbreak of... Um, 1918-1919, that was big reason. It had a lot to do with that, with the war ending as well, because, and again, that very, very much relates, because that was an avian flu virus, okay? It was the H3N2 strain, whereas today we hear of the H5N1 strain, which is what I did that 14-city tour on regarding the avian flu. But the Spanish flu of 1918-1919 was the H3N2 strain, and I believe we've, we've been able to absolutely prove that it was actually concocted and spread through the vaccinations that were given initially to the troops on the battlefield in World War I, and then also the people that were being vaccinated uh, during that time frame as well. But again, you have to watch the presentation to really understand that fully. Uh, so if we go further, mo but most importantly, Britain felt that it was uniquely aided by a British, Jewish British citizen, the brilliant chemist and Zionist leader, Cham Wiseman, for his help in the war effort when he developed a process to synthesize acetone, an ingredient necessary for producing the explosives that were in extremely short supply. Further, Britain wanted to establish a Jewish, Jewish nation in the Middle East, as a method of keeping the Ottoman Empire at arm's length. Plus, she felt that a declaration of support for the Zionist cause would bring America into World War I. Therefore, the British cabinet issued the famous Balfour Declaration. Author James Balfour, Foreign Security, Foreign Secretary in the British government, communicated the following memo to Lord Rothschild, head of the Zionist Federation in Great Britain. Now, this is Rothschild. This is the head family of the Illuminati. The Illuminati has 13 families. The Rothschilds have been the head of that of the 13 families for probably hundreds of years at this point. Okay, so this was a, a um, when they issued the Balfour Declaration, author James Balfour, Foreign Secretary of British Government, communicated to the, the following memo to Lord Rothschild, head of the Zionist Federation in Great Britain, on November 2nd, 1917. I'm quoting from this, and it says, I have the pleasure in conveying to you 
on behalf of His Majesty's government, the, the British government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations which have been submitted to and approved by the cabinet, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a home for the Jewish people. The first, you know, real, now we're really going to do this, we're really going to give the Jews back, you know, start to give them back their homeland. Then it says, it clearly, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and the political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country, end of quote. So I find it highly interesting that Rothschild received this memorandum because his family has been the greatest supporter of the coming New World Order of the Antichrist since 1793. Further, you can easily see how clear the, the Illuminist, the, the funding of the Zionist effort was. In other words, you can see where the money was coming from here, you know, Rothschild and these types of things. Uh, the Zionist effort. He was the head of the Zionist Federation. Okay, So, again, you, you always look at where the money's coming from. The Illuminati was literally buying Israel back from the Arabs, parcel by parcel. Worldwide Jewry funding for this project was enormous. Balfour Declaration was the first major step toward establishing Israel as a nation for the first time in the past 2,000 years. A major nation committed itself to the rebirth of Israel. World War I was the ultimate war that produced the nation of Israel. An illuminous leader, Adolf Hitler, arose in Germany, promising to end the humiliation suffered at the hands of the Allies, and to restore German might and influence. Hitler also published a book entitled Mein Kampf, which means My Struggle, in which he promised to annihilate all Jews throughout the world and to engulf all Europe in the war needed to establish the greater Germany. He felt he needed to establish the perfect Aryan race, leading then to the fifth root race. From the beginning of his government, Hitler set out to draw up precise plans to eradicate the Jews. Called this effort the Holocaust. From 1933 to 1938, Hitler began to issue various decrees and laws that systematically set up the Jew for persecution ripping them of their German citizenship in 1935. But the Holocaust officially began on November 10th, 9th and 10th, 1938, during a night called Kristallnacht, during which virtually all synagogues in Germany were destroyed. Soon after, the Nazis began confiscating property owned by the Jews and imprisoning Jews in concentration camps. After the outbreak of World War II on September 1, 1939, Hitler began the official extermination program, an effort that ended only on May 1945, you know, later, when the Allies liberated the last of the death camps. I have often found it interesting that Hitler's Holocaust lasted almost seven years, which was 2,376 days from... 11938 to 5645, and the true Antichrist will deal with Israel for exactly seven years, which will be 2530 days. So it's almost a very, very similar link. Now, obviously, Adolf Hitler wasn't the Antichrist, but he, like Obama, was, in, was a Antichrist. That's the distinction. And again, the Bible warns that there's going to be many Antichrists, okay, but there's only going to be one the. Antichrist. Jewish immigration to the Promised Land increased heavily during World War II as the Jews sought to flee Hitler. However, both American and British governments set up such formidable roadblocks to immigration 
that they kept the numbers lower than they would have been after the war ended, the influx of Jews into Israel became a flood. The horror of Western countries over the Holocaust set in motion a chain of events in which the United States, now under the leadership of President Truman, firmly backed the rebirth of Israel. This rebirthing took place under the auspices of the United Nations, thus demonstrating once again the illuminous backing for this national restoration. So again, you just have to take this whole national restoration of Jew- of of, of the Jews with a grain of salt and look at it with a historical perspective, not thinking that everything was just fine and dandy cotton candy, you know, as far as everything. Now, yes, God permitted it to happen, but we have to look at, again, who was backing it, where was the money coming from, and these types of things. On May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation once again. After 1900 years of not having a state, she came back to life again in a single day. The Second World War resulted in widespread destruction and suffering at the cost of many millions of lives, and in addition, millions of others, notably Jews and, and Poles, died in the Nazi death camps. Famines, illnesses swept the world as a result of this war. Well, that was the Spanish flu of 1980. I'm not going to blame the war on that, but again, you see my presentation for that. And then it says, while not as many people died of these, of these causes as in World War I, the death toll was still staggering. Earthquakes also began a steady rise in both numbers and intensity in each decade from the 1920s to 1940s. Thus you can see that the nation of Israel was born with exactly these types of birth pangs, spiritual deception, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilences. God is true to his word. Not only was Israel born again as a nation, but she was brought back in unbelief. Just as God foretold in Ezekiel 37.8d, which is the we're talking about the, the valley of the dry bones, okay? Where it, it says in Ezekiel 37, 8, uh, part D of that verse, that there was not spirit or breath in her, okay, when she was restored, okay? So, she was brought back in unbelief. And they still are in unbelief. Remember, blindness in part has happened to the Jew until the fullness of the Gentile come in. Okay, so again, we're not supposed to boast against the, the natural branches as, as Gentiles. If you are a Gentile, listen, this is a born-again Christian. You're as a wild olive leaf grafted in to the tree as it talks about in Romans. Okay, so we're not supposed to boast against the nat- natural branches, okay, or, or, or think we're better or anything like that. Okay, so um, we don't want to do that. But nation of Israel was brought back in unbelief. One of the major goals of the tribulation period is to produce a nation that believes in Jesus by the time she, he returns at the slaughter of Armageddon. A major part of producing this Christian nation is to allow the Antichrist to kill two-thirds of the Jews. Oh, that's not, I've never heard that. That's not ever talked about. Well, let's, let's look at it right now. Okay, let's go to Zechariah 13, verse 8. Okay, so, Zechariah 13, verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. That's how God always happens to the remnant. They're always tried as silver or gold, okay, which is the trial of our faith. And then it says, and I will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So these verses 8 and 9 that we just read in Zechariah refer to the suffering 
of the remnant in Israel. Okay. Now, if we go back to uh, Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah 12.10, the previous chapter, and it says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, so we're dealing with the, with the Israelites here. We're dealing with the, the Jewish race. The spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Okay, so they're going to finally understand that they crucified the Son of God, whom they pierced. Okay, remember his hands, you know, were wrists and, and feet were pierced, and so... They were the ones, you know, that were instrumental in that happening. When uh, Pilate offered them Barabbas, they said, no, no, give us, uh, offered to free Jesus or Barabbas, they said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus Christ, let his blood be upon us and our children. So I've done a whole teaching on this where we talk about the, um, the uh, why this curse has happened. And, and fell upon the Jews since that point. Now, this is not being anti-Semitic. I'm just pointing out biblical things here, okay? I'm not judging them. I'm just essentially pointing out what the Bible says here, okay? But there's going to come a time when they get their eyes opened, okay? And it's when they look upon him whom they've pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son, and they shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. They're going to realize for 2,000 years, corporately as a nation... We actually crucified the Son of God. We crucified our Savior. Okay? Now again, that doesn't mean we as Gentiles get all puffed up in ourselves and think we're better, because that's not the case at all. Okay, so I just kind of wanted to point that out here. So, Zechariah 13, in regard to the, the verses 8 and 9 that we read uh, previously, where it's 8 and 9 refers to the suffering of the remnant of Israel. Okay? Now it says here, that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. Two parts. But a third shall be left therein. So two-thirds of the Jews, and I believe these are going to be the unbelieving Jews that have no chance of going to heaven anyway, they're going to be, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be cut off and die. So um, that's very important to understand here. And then it says in verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire, and we'll refine them as silver is refined, and we'll try them as gold is tried, and they shall be they shall call upon my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Okay? So this this um sufferings of the remnant precedes the great battle. Okay. Zechariah, then it goes on in Zechariah 14 is a recapitulation of the whole matter. Okay. The order is this the gathering of the nations. Okay, in verse 2, and then again, this is essentially Armageddon, the gathering of the nations against um, um, Israel in the valley of Megiddo. And if we go to Revelation sixteen fourteen, for these are the spirits of devils working miracles. Now, again, here we go. The spirits of devils working miracles. Well, you think, well, so a devil couldn't work a miracle? Sure they can. Sure they can. They're working miracles. They're lying signs and wonders. These are the spirits of devil. Well, let's just go to verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the, of the false prophet. This is why I'm not real big on having anything frog statues or, or pictures or whatever in your house. 
because the Bible doesn't exactly give them a positive connotation here. Okay, Spirits of devils. And so these frogs are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth under the kings of the earth and of the whole world and gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and that keepeth his garments, the garments of righteousness. This is basically the righteous life that you live. Um, and then it says, Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Okay, now, again, I'm just going to segue real quick to Revelation 3.18, where it mentions this again. Revelation 3.18. So you kind of have, I counsel of thee to buy me gold tried in the fire. This is Jesus Christ talking to the Laodicean, lukewarm church. Counsel of thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that thy shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Most Christians in today's day and age are absolutely totally blind. Their eyes have not been anointed with eye salve. Um, they're, they're not walking with white, white raiment, which is the righteousness of the saints. That's what it says the white raiment is. So in other words, they're walking before God essentially naked. You're supposed to live a righteous life so that you are clothed before the Lord and so that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. So that's a real shameful thing to stand before God naked. In other words, now that doesn't mean I'm up here saying that I think I'm Mr. Righteous and Perfect or whatever. I'm just pointing out biblical tenets. I'm talking as much to myself as I would anyone else. So anyway, I just wanted to touch on that. So then it goes in verse 16 of Revelation 16. 16.16, and it says, And he gathered them together into the place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, okay, which actually stands for the Mount of Slaughter. That's what that word actually means. So, we've got these things. So, we've got the gathering of the nations um, against Israel, the battle of Armageddon, okay, that we already looked at Revelation 16.14. And then number two, the deliverance of the, um, of the Jewish people. And then the return of Christ to the Mount of Olives. Okay, and the physical change of that scene, which is in verses uh, 4 through 8. Oh, okay, this was actually in Zechariah 14. Well, let's just start reading that. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. And the house is rifled, and the woman ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Okay? So this is, there's going to be much tribulation associated with this as well. And then it says in verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. It's Christ. Okay? Which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave, meaning split, in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall be removed toward the north and half toward the south. So we've got, um, after God fights these nations, then we've got uh, the return of Christ to the Mount of Olives and the physical change of that scene, and then the setting up of the kingdom and the earthly blessings, and that's a whole other you know, subject that we can get into. We're getting into to now the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and for time's sake of this teaching, we're not going to get into that today. So, we've got all these things going on here that relate to the study. So, a major part producing um, this final, truly Jewish, yet Christian remnant nation, which is one-third of the Jews, okay, um, 
is 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 where we talk about here in Zechariah verse eight and nine. Okay, this is where we actually we get that, and then we have um, God protecting the one third of the remnant. Now, if we go to Revelation twelve verse thirteen. Okay, so Revelation thirteen. 12.13, And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she nourished for a time, and a times, and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth swallowed Earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. This is the Jewish remnant. This is most likely in reference um, to this one-third remnant that we were in reference to. Which keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's just a little bit more confirmation of what we're talking about here. This conversion of one-third of the Jewish population will not begin... Okay, so this conversion of the one-third of the Jewish population will not begin until after the start of the tribulation and the work of the 144,000 Jewish male virgin evangelists. Okay, where we, we get a lot into this 144,000. I, I get people asking me, well, can I be one of the 144,000? And you got all these cults out there saying that, you know, all the Mormons and, and the Jehovah Witnesses and these types of people and thinking that they're part of these 144,000. Well, let's just see who the 144,000 are. It's very, very simple. This is not a complex type of study. Revelation 7, 2 through 8. Revelation 7, 2 through 8. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. This is not for the Gentiles, okay? This is not for us, if you're a Gentile, okay? And then it goes into all the tribes. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, goes on and on and on. Now you notice, the one tribe that's missing is actually Dan. And again, I've done, I think we've, touched on this before, why Dan was left out. They were actually, essentially like a cursed tribe because of their own actions, okay? And there's another tribe that's actually grandfathered in there to replace them. But that's, again, that's a whole other other study. But uh, going then further, you can say, yeah, okay, well, it's 144,000 Jews. Um, okay, but we can get more specific. If we go to verse uh, chapter 14 of Revelation, 14 verse 3, and that says, And they sung as it were a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. Okay, this is after they're already evidently in heaven. And they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. For these are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits of God to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, and they are without fault before the throne of God. Okay, so now this is a more particular description of the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, these were they which were not defiled with women. These were males. They hadn't ever slept with a woman. They were not married. Okay, for they are virgins. 
Okay? It doesn't mean they're gay. It means they were virgins. Okay? So don't get that impression either. These are they that follow the Lamb, whether, whether soever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men. They were men. They were Jewish, male, or is, Israelite, male, virgins. Okay, the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe designated in um, Revelation 7, verses 2 through 8. Okay, so understand that. And then it says, And in their mouth was found no guile. For they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, I talked to a pastor one time, this this man, and I, I really truly believe that he was one uh, a true man of God that I met. I only met him a couple times, and I got some amazing confirmation from him, but he ha- he actually told me, now think about this, 144,000 Jewish male virgins, each of 12,000 from each tribe. Well, let me ask you a question. Knowing that we're right on the cusp of going into the tribulation, how could they not be born and living on this earth right now. Think about that. Where are they? Well, I'm not 100% sure where they all are or whether they're in little pockets or alcoves, hidden. God has them hidden. But this one pastor had told me, I think he was up in Baltimore or something or somewhere up there, and he had actually went to a, I don't know if it was a house or something where there were some of these, they were there. These And he said they were the most holy people he had ever, ever, ever been around. Ever been around. I mean, they were they were just... The descriptions of just being... Now, and I don't mean sanctimoniously thinking I'm better than you. They were very, very humble at the same time. And the Bible says, To this man will I look, to him that is of a meek and a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. So they were... They weren't all proud and haughty and thinking they're better, but they were very, very unbelievably conscious of sin. In other words, they were they were incredibly... Uh, it's like if you were around them, you would just feel like probably put the... Not because they were putting you to shame, just because they were so holy in their actions and there was no guile in them. Now the, now the Bible says right here, verse 5, it says, In their mouth was found no guile. Guile is deceit. For they are without fault before the throne of God. That doesn't mean they're walking around in sinless perfection. Only Jesus Christ did that. Okay? But, you know, it's just something to ponder. It's just a very kind of cool, interesting point to think about. Okay? Because they got to be here somewhere. Okay? So, then again, I'm not going to, you know, establish some big doctrine off that. But uh, I trusted this man, and, and, and it did make sense, because they got to be somewhere. And um, So, anyway, it's just an interesting little point there. Uh, so, if we go further here, then, so we've got the uh, conversion of the one-third of the Jewish population will not begin after the tribulation starts and the work of the 144,000 Jewish male virgin, virgin evangelists and the testimony of the two witnesses who will be standing in front of the Temple Mount for 1,260 days of the tribulation period, faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And again, there's a lot of people right now that, that say, well, I'm one of the two witnesses. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'll tell you what, that's some serious pride going on there. I think you're one of the two witnesses. I think the most likely candidates for the two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch because they were the only two in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant that were taken by God and did not die. Okay, so I, I again, I can't be 100% totally dogmatic based some religion off what I just said, but I think they're the most likely candidates and so then, and when Jesus returns, he finds an Israel in which the only people still living are the protected Christian remnant, 
the one-third that we talked about. Thus, the Apostle Paul could confidently say, and so all Israel shall be saved. Because you would think, well, hold on, if two-thirds are going to die, how's all Israel going to be saved? Because all of true Israel will be saved. Okay, according to Romans 11.26, all Israel will be saved. Now we can reconcile that verse with the Word of God. And it's the only way you can reconcile it. Because you can't tell me that all these Kabbalists practicing God, Jesus Christ hating Jews right now that are over there, the majority of them are not going to be converted. Okay, but a third will. Now, you could say, well, that's not fair. Two-thirds are going to go to hell. Yeah, but when you realize that probably 99% of the people on the planet are not truly saved, and we've got maybe 1% or 2 or 3% actually going to heaven, one-third is a much greater proportion than 2 to 3%, or 33% is a much greater proportion than probably the average of 2 to 3%. And again, I can't be dogmatic about my percentages there, but I just can't believe the Bible says... Narrow is the way which leadeth to life eternal, and few there be that find it. Broad is the way which leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go thereat. Okay? So, again, it's just an interesting point. So, Jesus will find as he returns the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 12, 8 through 11. I already read that, Zechariah 12. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're going to look upon them whom, he, whom they've pierced, and they're going to mourn for him. Okay, so they shall look up earnestly upon me whom they've pierced and, and mourn for him. So again, that's what that's how we can reconcile all those verses. Um, and I think that's important when talking about this particular study. I'm going to go ahead and take a break there, and we'll come back and start into part two.